Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. This is Robert J. Morgan, and I want to tell you the story of America's twin revivals, two revivals that preceded and followed the American Revolution. It could be argued that these two revivals did as much spiritually to change our nation as anything that happened politically. In fact, without these two great revivals, revivals of biblical proportions, No one can say if America, as we know her, would even exist as she does today. The first revival is called the First Great Awakening. As I've said in earlier podcasts, the coming of the pilgrims and the Puritan migration created a unique, highly educated, deeply religious population for the germination and the beginnings of American history. But over the decades, the spiritual flame died down. The lamp of the church burned low. But then in the early and mid-1700s, a great revival, the Great Awakening, swept over the colonies like a wildfire. And under the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and many others, the colonies were just set ablaze for Christ. These 13 colonies achieved a spiritual and moral cohesion that they had never before had, as well as a renewed concept of spiritual and political liberty. All of that helped to pave the way for the movement towards independence. Because of the Second Great Awakening, the pulpits of America sounded forth with the message of liberty, and many of the founding fathers reverenced the teaching of the Bible. But after the Civil War, Christianity in America, well, it simply crashed. Church attendance dropped to almost nothing. French rationalism swept over colleges, which became hotbeds of atheism. Thomas Paine's anti-Christian ravings demoralized the church, and the reorganization of society and its westward expansion left little room for spirituality. Chief Justice John Marshall worried that the church, he said, had gone too far to be redeemed. One North Carolina Christian lamented that few people in the South had ever heard of the name of Christ except as a curse. And another man wrote, quote, At the close of the long and arduous struggle for independence, large districts of the country were destitute of the gospel, and the people in great measure seemed to be given over to intemperance and irreligion. The disbanded armies carried immorality of the camp into almost every community. The vices contracted there, the infidelity imbibed there from French allies were spread. Religion and morality were at the lowest ebb they had ever reached in America. But a second great awakening was on its way. 
It's a little bit difficult to define the beginnings and the parameters of this revival. It was like a spontaneous series of combustions across a wide geographical zone. But there were two very important events that helped to anchor this Second Great Awakening. The first was a revival that was kindled by students at Virginia's Hampton Sydney College. Dr. J. Edwin Orr, whom I once had the opportunity of hearing and of meeting, and who was the great authority on revivals for the last generation, tells the story of this particular college in his book, Campus Aflame. A student at Hampton, Sydney, named Carrie Allen had embraced Christ in September of 1787. Another student, William Hill, began secretly reading a book by Joseph Aline, a wonderful little classic book called Aline's Alarm to the Unconverted. He kept it locked up in his trunk in his room. One day, a third student, James Blythe, found him reading this book, and just seeing him reading it caused him to break out in sobs. Blythe came under deep conviction and was converted. These three students became the nucleus of revival. They met secretly for prayer in a thick forest about a mile from the college, and one day they determined that they would meet the next Saturday on the campus itself. They intended to do it secretly. As Hill later recounted, Procuring a room to ourselves, we locked our door and we commenced our prayer meeting. Although we sung and prayed with suppressed voices, not wishing that it should be known what we were about, we were overheard by some of the students. It was noised about through every room in the college, and soon a noisy mob was raised, which collected in the hallway before our door, and began to thump at the door, and whoop and swear, and threaten vengeance. We had to cease, and to bear the ridicule and abuse of this noisy riot, which could not be quietened until two of the professors intervened and ordered us all to our rooms. Information of this right was given to the school's president, Robert Blair Smith, who demanded to know the cause of the riot and who were the leaders of it. Some of the prominent leaders who were against us stepped forward and said that there were some of us students who had shut ourselves up in one of the rooms of the college and began singing and praying and carrying on like Methodists, and they were determined to break it up. Hill continued, the president's eyes filled with tears, and after a short pause, he said, And has it come to this? Is it possible? Some of my students are under religious impressions. Some of my students are determined to serve their Savior. And is it possible that there are such monsters of iniquity in this college that they would dare to set themselves against these things? Then turning to the Christians, Smith said, I rejoice, my young friends, that you have taken the stand you have. You shall not be interrupted in your meetings for the future. Your appointment next Saturday afternoon shall be in my office, and I shall be with you. Well, a sense of conviction swept over the school, and the next week the president's office was filled with praying students. Revival overspread the campus, it penetrated into Virginia, and it spread through many churches and schools. President Blair's father, who had been converted during the First Great Awakening, came to investigate the matter. On October the 26th of 1788, he wrote to a friend saying, The half was not told me of the display of God's power and grace 
among these students. No, not the tenth part was told me. He said, I've seen nothing equal to it for the extensive nature of its spread and power and glory since the first great awakening during the years of 1740 and 1741. He said, the word of this revival is spread for hundreds of miles. It is spread among many people of every description, high and low, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, orthodox and heterodox, sober and rude, white and black, young and old, but especially, he said, among the youth. Well, one after another, colleges and universities and communities all throughout this eastern seaboard area experienced revivals, and all of these were the first flames of the Second Great Awakening. Let me give you another example. The campus of Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, was filled with agnostics in April of 1806 when a student named Samuel Mills showed up. Mills was a follower of Christ. From his youth, Mills had been burdened for those overseas who had never heard the gospel. Up to this point, no American group had done much to reach the foreign fields, but Mills had been inspired by the stories of colonial preachers like David Brainerd and Jim Elliott. He told one friend, Though you and I are very little beings, we must not rest satisfied until we have made our influence extend to the remotest corner of this ruined world. Mills and a handful of his friends began meeting twice a week in a grove of trees near the college. One Saturday afternoon in August of 1806, their prayer meeting was interrupted by a lightning storm and they had to seek shelter in a nearby field. They found a haystack. Though they were still exposed to the open sky, they were partially shielded by this haystack from the rain and the wind, and as the storm passed over, the fellows were overwhelmed to pray internationally for one country after another. Mills began speaking passionately about taking the gospel to these nations to the end of the earth, and he told them, this is his phrase, we can do it if we will. Well, the students finished their prayer, sang a hymn, and returned to their rooms, but they knew something special had happened. And to this day, church historians point to the Haystack Prayer Meeting as the birthplace of American foreign missions. It happened among students in the eastern seaboard area during the Second Great Awakening. After graduating from Williams, Mills enrolled in Andover Seminary, where he continued speaking up for overseas missions. On June the 27th of 1810, he and some of his friends appealed to their congregational denomination, that is, the ancestors of the Puritan migration, to establish a missionary society. There had been no missionary societies established before then. The students' petition said, quote, The undersigned members of the Divinity School respectfully request the attention of their reverend fathers convened in the General Assembly at Bradford to the following statement and inquiries. They beg leave to state that their minds have long been impressed with the duty and importance of personally attempting a mission to the heathen, and they consider themselves as devoted to this work for life whenever God and his providence shall open the way. The undersigned, feeling their youth and inexperience, look up to their fathers in the church and respectfully solicit their advice, direction, and prayers. Signed, 
Adoniram Judson, Jr., Samuel Knott, Jr., and Samuel J. Miles. The Reverend Fathers responded quickly, establishing the American Board of Commissioner of Foreign Missions. Mills became a missionary to the American frontier. Samuel Knott went to India, and Adoniram and Ann Judson, along with Luther Rice and Samuel and Harriet Newell, sailed for Asia on February the 19th of 1812 as America's first appointed Protestant overseas missionaries. How incredible that America's first great missionary movement, the Golden Age of Missions, was started by a handful of college students during the Second Great Awakening. So all of that was happening in campuses along the eastern seaboard. Meanwhile, there was another area of revival that was beginning to burst into flame, and it was on the frontier in America's western regions, which meant in places like Illinois and Kentucky and Ohio, something was happening there, but it was very different. It was similar, but it was still very different. In the east, we had campus revivals, but in the west, we had camp meeting revivals. Those started in about the year 1800-1801, when large crowds started showing up for a series of communion services conducted by Presbyterian James McGreedy of Logan, Kentucky. Among the attenders was Barton Stone, the pastor of two small churches west of Lexington, Kentucky. Stone went back to his church in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, to report on what he had seen. He said, I returned with ardent spirits to my congregations. I reached my appointment at Cane Ridge on the Lord's Day. Multitudes had collected, anxious to hear the religious news of the meeting that I had attended in Logan. I ascended the pulpit and gave a relation or report of what I had seen and heard. Then I opened my Bible and preached from these words, Go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The church members in Cane Ridge decided to hold a similar communion service for their area. Their building was large. It could hold maybe 500 people. But they also erected a tent for the overflow. But nobody expected the multitudes who actually showed up. Thousands of people. As Barton Stone later described it, The roads were literally crowded with wagons, carriages, horsemen, and footmen moving to the solemn camp. The sight was affecting. It was judged, he said, by military men on the ground that there were between 20 and 30,000 people who showed up. Four or five preachers were frequently preaching at the same time in different parts of the camp without confusion. The Methodist and the Baptist preachers aided in the work, and all appeared cordially united in it, all of one mind, of one soul, and the salvation of sinners seemed to be the great object of all. He said, we all engaged in the singing of the same songs of praise, we all united in prayer, we all preached the same gospel, free salvation urged upon all by repentance and by faith. He said a particular description of this meeting would fill a large volume, and then the half would not be told. The numbers converted will be known only in eternity. He said many things transpired there which were so much like miracles. The meeting continued six or seven days, and it would have continued longer, but provisions and food for such a multitude failed in the neighborhood.
Well, we know from reports that unexplainable things happen at Cane Ridge, and there were strange manifestations. The wave of emotions that swept over the crowds produced religious ecstasy, with people fainting, falling as if dead, jerking, dancing, running, laughing, and singing. And it's estimated that as many as 3,000 people were converted at this one protracted meeting alone. It's hard to comprehend what happened at Cane Ridge between August 6 and 12 of 1801, the revival that began there and the impact it had. Along with the campus revivals in the East, it effectively launched the Second Great Awakening, which means, don't ever forget this, that the United States of America was born between two great spiritual revivals of really biblical proportions, the first and the second great awakenings. Coming as it did at the beginning of the 1800s, the second great awakening established a basis for the greatest era of national and international missionary expansion hitherto known in history. Dr. Paul Keith Conkin summed up the Cane Ridge revival this way. He said, never before in America had so many people attended this type of sacramental occasion. In other words, it was a long communion service. Never before had such a diversity of seizures or physical exercises affected or afflicted so many people. He said the Cane Ridge Sacrament has become a legendary event. He said, listen to this, the closest approximation to an American Pentecost prelude to a Christian century. It arguably remains, he said, the most important religious gathering in all of American history, both for what it symbolized and for the effects that flowed from it. I often think of the phrase that he used there, an American Pentecost. I don't want to overstate it, but it almost seems that that is an appropriate designation for what happened at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Out of the Second Great Awakening came powerful preachers like Charles Finney and tremendous organizations, missionary endeavors, Sunday schools, gospel songs, and domestic humanitarian and evangelistic movements that changed the 19th century. So remember, the United States of America is a nation that was born between two of the greatest revivals and all of church history. The First Great Awakening prepared the colonies for independence, and the Second solidified her moral and spiritual foundation for the future. Now America needs another Great Awakening, doesn't it? A new revival. The Bible says in Psalm 85, verse 6, and this is our prayer, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? For more information about these stories and about the role of the Bible in American history, please check out my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. I'm glad you've taken time to tune in today. This podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Elijah Rowe assisted in the editing. Music is by Jordan Davis. For more resources and information, please visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for listening.